0: Chapter One of George Bowring: A Tale of Cataractus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Conover, Windham, Maine. George Bowring A Tale of Cataractus, by Richard. Doddridge BLACKMORE CHAPTER 1 When I was a young man, and full of spirits, some forty years ago or more, I lost my best and truest friend in a very sad and mysterious way. The greater part of my life has been darkened by this heavy blow and loss, and the blame which I poured upon myself for my own share in the matter george boring had been seven years with me at the fine old school of shrewsbury and trod on my heels from farm to farm so closely that when i became at last the captain of the school he was second to me i was his elder by half a year and sapped very hard while he labored little so that it will be plain at a glance although he never acknowledged it that he was the better endowed of the two with natural ability. At that time, we of Salop always expected to carry everything, so far as pure scholarship was concerned, at both the universities. But nowadays, I am grieved to see that schools of quite a different stamp, such as Rugby, and Harrow, and even Marlborough, and worse of all, Peddling Manchester, have been running our boys hard and sometimes almost beating them. And how have they done it? Why, by purchasing masters of our prime rank and special style. George and myself were at one time likely and pretty well relied upon to keep up the fame of Sabrina's crown, and hold our own at Oxford. But suddenly it so fell out that both of us were cut short of classics, and flung into this unclassic world." In the course of our last half-year at school, and when we were both taking final polish to stand for Balliol scholarships, which we were almost sure to win, as all the examiners were Shrewsbury men, not that they would be partial to us, but because we knew all their questions. Within a week both George and I were forced to leave the dear old school, the grand old town, the lovely Severn and everything but one another he lost his father i lost my uncle a gentleman in derbyshire who had well provided my education but having a family of his own could not be expected to leave me much and he left me even less than could from his own point of view have been rational it is true that he had seven children but still a man of fifteen thousand pounds a year might have done without injustice or as i might say with better justice something more than to leave his nephew a sum which after much pushing about into divers insecurities fetched seventy-two pounds ten shillings per annum nevertheless i am truly grateful though perhaps at this time i had not that knowledge of the world which enlarges the grateful organs. It cannot matter what my feelings were, and I never was mercenary. All my sentiments at that period ran in Greek centerae, and perhaps it would show how good and lofty boys were in that ancient time, though now they are only rude solicits. If I were to set these verses down, but after much consideration I find it wiser to keep them in. George Bowring's father had some appointment well up in the treasury. He seems to have been at some time knighted for finding a manuscript of great value that went, in the end, to the paper mills. How he did it, or what it was, or whether he ever did it at all, were questions for no one to meddle with. People in those days had larger minds than they ever seem to exhibit now. The king might tap a man and say, Rise, Sir Joseph! and all the journals of the age, or at least the next day, would echo Sir Joseph! and really he was worthy of it. A knight he lived, and a knight he died, and his widow found it such a comfort. And now, on his father's sudden death, George Boring was left not very, so very well off. So Joseph had lived, as a knight should do, in a free-handed, errant, and chivalrous style, and what he left behind made it lucky that his title dropped. George, however, was better placed, as regards the world, than I was, but not so very much as to make a difference between us. Having always held together, and being started in life together, we resolved to face the world, as other people are always called side by side, and with a friendship that should make us as good as one. This, however, did not come out exactly as it should have done. Many things arose between us, such as diverse occupation, different hours of work and food, and a little split in the taste of trousers, which, of course, should not have been. He liked the selvage down his legs, while I thought it unartistic and going much into the graphic line, I pressed my objections strongly. But George, in the handsomest manner, as now, looking back on the case I acknowledge, waived my objections, and insisted as little as he could upon his own. And again we became as tolerant as any two men at all alike can be of one another. He by some postern of influence got into some dry ditch of the treasury, and there as in an old castle moat began to be at home and move gently and after his seniors as the young ducks follow the old ones and at every waddle he got more money my fortune however was not so nice i had not sir joseph of treasury sellers to light me with his name and memory into a snug cell of my own i had nothing to look to but courage and youth and education, and three-quarters of a hundred pounds a year, with some little change to give out of it. Yet why should I have doubted? Now I wonder at my own misgivings. Yet all of them still return upon me, if I ever am persuaded just to try Welsh Rabbit, enough that I got on, at least, to such an extent that the man at the dairy offered me half a year's milk, for a sketch of a cow that had never belonged to him. George, meanwhile, having something better than a brush for a walking-stick and an easel to sit upon, had taken unto himself a wife, a lady as sweet and bright as could be, by name Emily Atkinson. In truth, she was such a charming person that I, myself, in a quiet way, had taken a very great fancy to her, before George Boring saw her. But as soon as I found what a desperate state the heart of poor George was reduced to, and came to remember that he was fitted by money to marry while I was not, it appeared to me my true duty toward the young lady and him, and even myself, to withdraw from the field, and have nothing to say if they set up their horses together. So George married Emily. I could not imagine why it was that I strove in vain to appear as his best man at the rails where they do it. For though I had ordered a blue coat and buttons, and a cashmere waistcoat, amber-coloured with a braid of peonies, yet at the last moment my courage failed me, and I was caught with a shivering in the knees, which the doctor said was ague, this and that shyness of dining at his house which i thought it expedient to adopt during the years of his married life created some little reserve between us though hardly so bad as our first disagreement concerning the stripe down the pantaloons however before that dereliction i had made my friend a wedding present as was right and proper a present such as nothing less than a glorious windfall could have enabled me to buy for while engaged, some three years back, upon a grand historical painting of Cordelion and Saladin, now to be seen, but let that pass. Posterity will always know where to find it. I was harassed in mind perpetually concerning the grain of the fur of a cat. To the dashing young artists of the present day this may seem a trifle to them, no doubt. A cat is a cat, or would be if they could make it one. Of course there are cats enough in London, and sometimes even a few to spare. But I wanted a cat of peculiar order, and of a Saracenic cast. I walked miles and miles, till at last I found him residing in a very old-fashioned house in the Polygon at Somers Town. Here was a genuine paradise of cats, carefully administered to and guarded, by a maiden lady of portuguese birth and of advanced maturity each of these nine cats possessed his own stool a mahogany stool with a velvet cushion and his name embroidered upon it in beautiful letters of gold and every day they sat round the fire to digest their dinners all nine of them each on his proper stool some purring some washing their faces and some blinking or nodding drowsily. But I need not have spoken of this, except that one of them was called Saladin. He was the very cat I wanted. I made his acquaintance in the area, and followed it up on the knife-boy's board, and then I had the most happy privilege of saving him from a tailpipe. Thus my entrance was secured into this feline Eden, and the lady was so well pleased, that she gave me an order for nine, full-length cat-portraits, at the handsome price of ten guineas apiece. Not only this, but at her demise, which followed, uh, alas, too speedily, she left me one hundred and fifty pounds as a proof of her esteem and affection. This sum I divided into three equal parts, fifty pounds for a present for George, another fifty for a duty to myself and the residue to be put by for some future purpose. I knew that my friend had no gold watch, neither, of course, did I possess one. In those days, a gold watch was thought a good deal of, and made an impression in society, as the three hundred dollar guinea ring does now. Barwise was then considered the best watchmaker in London, and perhaps in the world. So I went to his shop, chose two gold watches of good size and substance none of your trumpery catchpenny things the size of a gilt pill trodden upon at the price of fifty guineas each as i took the pair the foreman let me have them for a hundred pounds including also in that figure a handsome gold key for each of exactly the same pattern and a guard for the fob of watered black silk ribbon my reason for choosing these two watches out of a trayful of a similar quality was perhaps a little whimsical, viz. that the numbers they bore happened to be sequenced. Each had its number engraved on its white enamel dial, in small but very clear figures, placed a little above the central spindle, also upon the extreme verge at the nadir below the second's hand. The name of the maker, Barwise. London. They were not what are called hunting-watches, but had strong and very clear lunette glass fixed at the rims of substantial gold, and their respective numbers were 7777 and 7778. Carrying these in wash-leather bags, I gave George Boring his choice of the two, and he chose the one with the four figures of seven, making some little joke about it not good enough to repeat nor even bad enough to laugh at end chapter 1